This portion of John's Gospel, we've been looking at Jesus' suffering on the way to the cross. And, and so far we've looked at Jesus' betrayal, we've looked at um, his denial by Peter, we've looked at the contempt poured out on him, we've looked at last week the condemnation from the mobs. And, and, and first before moving on, why, why this focus? Why, why take this time? Now, one, it's because we are headed towards in John's gospel. We're going to be landing at on Good Friday, Jesus on the cross. And look at his suffering there on the cross for the sins of the world. We're, we're then on Easter going to come to the resurrection and the good news of the life in Jesus conquering the grave and celebrating that together. So John's gospel is going to flow right into that. We're kind of matching it up with the, the calendar uh, and, and, and heading there. But why would we take this time to focus on Jesus' suffering on the way to the cross? Well, Hebrews 12.3 says this, Consider him, consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The hostility of being denied, the hostility of the mobs crying out, crucify him, condemning him. The contempt poured out on him by the high priest and the soldiers as they stood over him and talked down to him. Consider the hostility against Jesus. So that, so why consider it? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There's something about as if you're to be a Christian, if you think of life as a journey, the, the Christian approach, if, if you're like, hey, I'm, I'm, this church thing isn't really my thing, Christianity at the end of the day is saying we're all heading home. We're heading home to our creator to have eternal life with him. This is a pilgrimage. This is a journey in this life. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is if you don't want to grow faint-hearted in that journey, uh, in keeping on that goal, that trajectory, that destination of having life with God forever, the thing that keeps you faint from becoming faint-hearted, from bowing out, is that you would consider the hostility that Jesus endured. Now, one reason for considering that and how it keeps us from growing faint-hearted is we see that God, we see him clearly in how he graciously would come into the world, into this broken world, and he would bring his grace and salvation and healing. In spite of the sin that we commit, in spite of the death that we reap, God comes after us. He pursues us with his love and his grace. On the other side of that as well is that when we consider the hostility against Jesus, it also gives us a clear look into ourselves. Because often what we see here in how Jesus is being treated is we see something being disclosed about what's going on within us as humanity, as individuals. What's happened in our hearts? What's our primary disposition towards God? And that is helpful to frame what we're going to be looking at next. Because today we look at mockery, the mockery of Jesus, the mockery of Jesus as a king, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, the hail mocking him. Mockery, the definition, if you look it up online, is an absurd misrepresentation or imitation of something. Or the teasing and contemptuous language or behavior directed at a particular person or a thing. See, mockery is, what we're doing in mockery is we mock people that claim to be something they aren't when they're blind to that thing. And they, they assume that they are something. So this is especially, our, our, our culture, I remember around like 2000 or so, uh, you saw this on television. 
uh, we're really good in our culture at mockery. And, and it started especially with The Office, right? Everyone's seen the show The Office. And, and what you have on The Office is this, this great capturing of, of mockery, and it changed a comedy on TV forever. Uh, because what they would do is you would have this idea of you have a corporate boss, right? who assumes he's the great, he literally has a mug that says best boss in the world, right? Greatest Michael Scott. And, and so Michael Scott, the whole show's about kind of this office culture that he's setting. He thinks he's an amazing leader. He's an amazing motivator. And he really keeps falling on his face, but he's completely oblivious to it, yet he assumes he is something he is not, which is a world-class leader, right? And so the show, what will happen is the members, uh, the, the folks in the office, they'll have these little side interviews in a room. And, the, and what they'll do is they'll, like, you'll see Michael Scott do something. And then he'll come back to the person who's an employee who sees it, and they kind of smirk at the camera, right? And so it's kind of breaking down the fourth wall. And, and, and it's, it's this idea of what mockery does is we see something, and, we, and they assume there's something they're not. And what we do is we kind of turn and kind of smirk, right? And so here's the thing. Mockery has two sides to it. Mockery has the side of the person who's being mocked. It's assumed that there's something they're not. But the other side of mockery, and this is where the, when it says in the definition, there's this contempt for it. Because we stand over it. We look down on them. There is another side of the assumption, which is that we assume we can see. And we can see rightly, which is why we mock. We can evaluate rightly. Well, here... We see the mockery of Jesus. And the mockers assume that Jesus' claims to be king, his claims to be God are completely bogus. The other side of that is that they assume that they're right. They assume that they see it rightly. What we're going to see here is we're going to see in the mockery of the soldiers, in the mockery of Jesus, we're going to see the assumption that lies at the heart of all of us in our rebellion against God. This slight subtle in every sin to kind of when God claims I'm God, it's my world. You're my creatures. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we kind of turn to the proverbial camera and smirk, assuming we know better. So we're going to have a picture here in the mockery of Jesus that goes deeper than just the historical events that happen in the mockery of Jesus. Jesus is mocked because it demonstrates for us, first, sin's mockery of God. Second, what we're going to look at is sin's mockery of man. And then third, we're going to look at sin's mockery on the cross. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Well, Lord, we, we're really we're shocked when we come to this passage. Uh, really, when we, we read this passage and we see the things, if we, we truly come to grips with what is happening here, the mockery of the Son of God who entered human flesh, who came in human flesh in order to live among his creation, his creatures, claiming to be God and claiming to restore us to life with you, we mocked him. And God, help us to see in that act how we, in our every subtle, sinful inclination towards you, we at its heart are mocking you and your claims to be God and King. And so, Lord, would you help us to see ourselves here? And Lord, would you also, in the midst of that, help us to see the graciousness of Christ in response and how you give us life 
and pour out your grace upon us, even in the midst of our mockery, even in the midst of our rebellion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the mockery here is distinct. They mock Jesus for something specific, his, his claims to be king. Okay, so we're going to come back to that in a moment. And then we, we see this again with the crown of thorns. We see this with the purple robe that they put on him. And so why, why specifically are they mocking him as a king? Right? Why aren't they mocking him as a social activist? Why aren't they mocking him as a, as a prophet? Why, aren't they, why are they mocking him as a king specifically? Well, one way to think about this is to go back to exactly what happened at the fall. So Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you have God who's the creator, and he made humanity to live under his kingship. God, God, God reigns in the universe, right? And so God, in other words, what you could say, put simply, is God calls the shots. God's God. We're his creatures. And so he's created the world, and he says, this is how you are to live in my world. And we've looked at in this series how that is a life that's full of delight and worship and in the presence of a loving and gracious God. It's meant to be a life of joy and peace. But the danger, well, let me say it like this. So one way to think about that is, is kind of like the creation order, which is that God created the world where it's God, then man, and then creation. That, that man was made to rule over creation, rule and subdue, be fruitful and multiply, cultivate God's glory throughout all of creation. But it's with them worshiping God, God being utmost, right? So God man, and then creation. Uh, to put it simply, though, the danger of being made in the image of God is that we can begin to assume that we are God and forget that we're in the image of God. That's part of the beauty and the, really the mind-blowing dignity of humanity is that we're made in the image of God. And, and we do it to such a degree, the problem is that we can actually begin to believe we are God, and this is why in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in, even though man's called to be fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion over the world. In Genesis 2, specifically with Adam, to name the beast of the field, this is why the serpent comes in, Genesis 3.1, and he's described not just as a serpent, but as more crafty than any other beast of the field. He's coming from creation, the very creation man is meant to rule over, and then he questions, he says, for did God really say? Because God said, don't eat of the tree of good and evil. You can eat of all of this creation, but there are things here that are too heavy for you to bear. I, I heard this from somebody recently. I'm going to use it on my kids. When my kids are getting to that age where they're starting to ask all the big questions, right? the big questions of reality. And those questions that come up at times, they're, they're questions that's like, man, how do I answer these questions right now? And some of them, they're questions that's like, it's too heavy to bear. And so somebody told me about their dad when they were asking, uh, uh, dad, you know, you're eight years old and you're asking about sex. You're asking about these things. And you're like, how do I answer? And he said, listen, see that suitcase over there? It was filled with stuff. And they walked over and he was like, pick that up. And they were like, I can't pick it up. And he said, exactly. There are some things in life right now that you have to trust me are too heavy for you to pick up and for you to carry. And trust me right now, I can explain to you some of the things, but some of the things will have to come with time when you're ready to carry them. And there, there's, that's a picture of what's happening here where God is saying in the garden, do not eat of the knowledge of good and evil because there are some realities here that only I as God am meant to bear and you're not meant to bear. But then Satan questions that. Did God really say you, can, you can't eat of the tree? And Eve says, he did, and if we do, we'll die, which God had said. But then the serpent follows up with a claim, and this is key. 
This is verse 4 of Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, your, of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the assumption that Satan introduces here. God's keeping you from a better life. God's rules, God's, how God created things, all this idea of morality and behavior or the law of God or the standards of God, whatever term you want to put on it. He says all of these things are there because God is actually keeping you from something, something better, something truer, something more beautiful. And wouldn't it be great if instead you called the shots? Wouldn't it be better if you were God? It would be better if you could determine evil and good for yourself. Wouldn't it be better if you were on the throne and you were the king, you were the queen? In distilled form, this is part of the, the, the brilliance of, of Genesis 3. It captures in distilled form the root of all sin, which is at its heart, the rejection of God as king. The rejection of God and his claims to be, well, God. It says, it's a disposition that says, I'll call the shots, thank you very much. In the end, what this is, is sin. It hears God's word. Sin is this disposition that when we hear God's word, when we hear God's call upon us, that there's kind of this, yeah, 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 and then there's kind of, we go into the other room, we look into the proverbial camera, and we smirk. An assumption that we know better, an assumption that God is something that he is not, an assumption that we are something that we are not. Now, the thing is, it starts with those small smirks. Those small smirks become behaviors and those behaviors become our character and that character becomes our legacy and that legacy of individuals pollutes and corrupts up to society we live in a fallen world and so what we have here in this scene is the beginning of the remedy which is that god himself would enter the world and he would give us a very clear picture of how sin mocks him so verses one through three then Pilate took jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. The, there's a D.A. Carson who is a scholar. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John explaining the different elements of what's going on here. And he says this. He says the crown of thorns was probably twisted together from the up to 12-inch long spikes of a date palm. Fashioned into a mock imitation of radiant crowns, oriental god kings were depicted as wearing. The purple robe was probably a military cloak flung around Jesus' shoulders, mocking dress up for a royal robe. See, the mockery here is specifically designed to mock God's claims, or Jesus' claims, of being king, of being God, of ruling, of reigning. The crown of thorns... The crown of thorns, can you imagine this mockery? They, they take the, 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 this date palm. with the, Can you imagine that with thorns? Have you ever even seen a thorn that long? A foot long? The length of a ruler? 
and, and all these small ones in between, and they, they wrap it into, like think barbed wire, and they wrap it into a, a crown, and they, they press it down on his head. Remember, Jesus is probably, he, they've got him down on his knees before them. They've stripped him down, and they press it down on his head, this crown of thorns. It's a symbol of a king. Oh, you reign. Oh, you're powerful. And the irony here that it's a crown of thorns, the very symbol of the fall of thorns and thistles invading God's good creation. And they say, you're this kind of king. And they mock him and they make fun of him. And, and they bring this robe, which is, which is this robe that was usually something put on a king when they would return from battle. This kind of captures military might. And they would have taken this tattered old, probably like almost think like a tattered old curtain. And would have wrapped it around him. You can imagine them coming around him and putting it on and holding him like a straight jacket on the Prince of Peace. Oh, you're mighty. You can imagine them stepping back and they, they dress him like this and they're walking around him. And every single step when they put on the crown of thorns, they look to one another and they smirk. They put on the robe and they turn and they smirk. You can imagine them stepping back when they say, Hail. <laughs> I can barely even get out the words. It's so hilarious. Hail, King of the Jews, King of the world. A mockery dripping with contempt. And they spit the words in his face until that seething rage comes out and they just wail on. God of the universe allows him to be, himself to be struck by man. <laughs> See, the thing is with this mockery is this is not just any mockery. This is not just political satire. This is a picture of what in our sin we do to God's claims of being God. Don't miss this. This is a picture of our every sin. This is a picture of our hearts seeking life in the world by mocking the eternal God. This is not just men. It is men historically 2,000 years ago. But this is what all of us do in our hearts every moment when we have that instance, when we have to make a decision of whether or not to follow God's call to serve him. While we can't mock Jesus physically, our hearts are prone to it. We lash out against God and his claims against our life. Instead of mocking God and striking him with our fists, we, we caricature his law. We strike him with our thoughts, with our attitude, our words. There's a hymn that we're going to read or uh, sing a little bit later that captures how we should read these scenes with the crowds, with the priests, with the soldiers, and how they're coming to Jesus here. Not just as they did this, but seeing ourselves here. Uh, the hymn is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's, a, it's an amazing modern-day hymn, and it has this line, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. 
the scoffing, the denial, the condemnation, the striking. When we see this, we should see a picture of what ultimately is going on in our hearts when we reject God's claims to be God. Because there's something ever since the fall that assumes we know good and evil. We know what it's like to be better than God himself. This is the natural state of our souls apart from God's grace. In sin, we mock God's claims to be God. So the question is, how can our eyes be open, right? How in the world can our eyes be open to this if this is part of our nature? Well, it's right in front of us because what God is going to do first is God is going to make a mockery. He's going to demonstrate for us how sin... See, when I'm talking about God's law and obeying God, listening to God's command, responding to him, it's not just because God is a control freak. It's because God has designed the world so that we would have life. And, and, and his lordship, his, his boundaries, his, his law, all these things are so we might have life with him, life to the full. We're literally made in the image of God and designed as creatures within God's creation to find life in the ways he's revealed to us. And so what he's going to do is he's going to very graciously, Jesus is, is going to show us how sin makes a mockery of us. So, second point, sin's mockery of man uh, when we assume God's claims are bogus and we make better, you know, we'd make better kings, our kingdoms and queendoms would be much better places, right? We reject God, we live our own way. What happens is ultimately our lives fall apart. Why? Well, what happens is fundamentally when we reject God's lordship, that creation order of God, man, creation becomes inverted, this is what's presented with the curse, which actually we're going to look at a little bit more next week, why it is that God brings about the curse, and we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to see the wisdom behind that. But what happens is fundamentally in the fall, because of our disposition, is we reject God's lordship, and what happens is it, it flips it in creation. Even though we, we think that we're going to be king, what happens is that ultimately we end up worshiping creation. We end up worshiping the created things. We end up going to the things in this world. It becomes the creation, man. God. And, and what happens is we, we go to the things of this world. We are now uh, encased in this, this new reality with our dispositions that we'll rule over the world. But here's the thing, we're not God, so we're not big enough or too finite to rule over the world. And so we have to consistently come back to the things of this world to find our significance, to find our meaning. And, and, and so we go to things in this world trying to find them, and they end up, the Bible tells us again and again, they end up enslaving you. They end up drawing you in and seducing you with promises that it, they just can't, they can't cash the check. But again and again, we keep going to creation, trying to find our identity, trying to find some sense of meaning, trying to find some sense of deep security and salvation. And sin makes a mockery of us. Our wrong assumptions that we know how to run this whole thing. That actually, if I could just get my way and I could just be king, I could just be queen, that we'd find life. And all the time while we're doing it, and we're over here and we've got the world's best king mug. Sin, Satan, smirking into the camera. 
leaves us with empty, bitter souls, broken relationships, addictions. Uh, a way of saying this is what it ends up doing is it eventually leads to death. It ends up leaving us, leaving us looking emotionally, spiritually, and usually down the road it manifests physically, looking bloodied, beaten up, exhausted. Exactly what Jesus is presented as here. Continuing in verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know what I find, that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being there in the crowds and you see Jesus with this, this tattered robe walking up, standing there humiliated between, before the crowds with the crown of thorns, the blood flowing down his face where it's been pressed in, the wincing, probably the hobbling, bruised and beaten and scars all over his face, the swollen black eye, all of it. Can you imagine him standing there in that state? What's happening here? Jesus is fully receiving the wages of sin. Jesus is the man. Jesus now is pronounced before the crowds as every man, as humanity. This is a picture of humanity in the rebellion. What sin does to humanity, mocking the very life that God has promises, the glory that we are created for, of life and joy and peace in the presence of God as ruling under God over creation. And here we're presented in our true state in the fall. If we could really see ourselves bloodied, beaten, exhausted, Addicted. In verse 5, God is taking our place as the man, fully receiving the wages of sin and becoming the true accursed king that humanity deserves. Jesus here is becoming the Passover lamb. He's taking on the broken, battered, sinful nature of fallen man. And so, behold, every man becomes a perfect picture of us, of sin, making a mockery of humanity. Jesus is a picture of humanity as a king, robed and crowned in the curse, the ultimate mockery sin makes over us. The crown of thorns, that we can assume that we can live autonomously, autonomous I've, before, it's such a, a helpful word. Autonomy comes from auto, namas, namas meaning law. It means the assumption that we can live by our own law, that we can live by our own standards. That, and what ends up happening is just instead our desires become the controlling force in our life. And our desires drive us all kinds of places. And usually if we give ourselves over to our desires, it's not a good place where they drive us. And it makes a mockery of our lives. It makes a mockery of any having a stable marriage. It makes a mockery of all of our relationships. It makes a mockery of our ability to, to build a career. It makes a mockery of, of our, of of through discipline, developing the skills and talents that God has given us. Asserting our ability to find true life on our own terms, we end up bloodied and beaten. The, the purple robe 
It's kind of this being robed in these attempts to find approval, success, power, achievement in this world. <laughs> A glory that can be stripped just as quickly as it's put on. Bruised, swollen, beaten, ashamed, cursed man, always striving, never arriving. Behold the man. Jesus has become and now has taken on the very sinful state that we find ourselves in and the mockery that sin makes of us when we give ourselves to it. The irony is that the crowd see Jesus and they begin crying out, crucify him. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. <laughs> the innocent Passover lamb of God. No guilt. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Why should they crucify him? The answer is he made himself, made himself. Jesus made himself the son of God. Just look at him. But here's the whole point. Here's the whole irony is even though we would cry out and say that, that essentially what they're saying is that, that right there, damnable. That needs to be dealt with. That needs a payment. That needs to be... Kill him because death is exactly what he reaps. And the irony here is this is a picture of us. Again, claiming Jesus. You, you make yourself God. Why? Because of the assumption that actually I know better. It's a picture of us. It's a picture of all of our voices. Of saying you've made yourself God when the fact is we actually make ourselves God every day. And if we were honest with ourselves, when we make ourselves God, what we would do if we were actually the standard, we would say, and we'd see ourselves in our true state, we'd say, that needs to be crucified. I can imagine Jesus standing there, tears in his eyes, and thinking, how can you not see? This is the plight of man. This is you. This is me. This is us bruised, beaten, humiliated in our empty pursuit of glory, crowned with a curse, robed in tattered ambitions. We read, behold the man, we should see ourselves robed and crowned in the pseudo-glories of this world, all the things that promise to give us life and fail. Jesus became the man. He became like you and me and takes our place to be mocked in sin. The scandal of the gospel is this, not only that we could mock God, this scandalous scene here, but the scandal of the gospel is that God, the God we mock, would stand in our place to be mocked in our place so that we'd see a mirror to ourselves. A question before moving on to the final point here is how much of your weariness is due to trying to make crowns for yourselves? I, I was asking myself this week, how much of my weariness, how much of my exhaustion, how much of that, you know, like emotionally you feel bruised and, I don't know, exhausted, beat up, like how much of that is because I'm just trying, I have these, the tattered ambitions, these, I'm trying to find the crown for myself in this world. 
And how much of that is just because I'm running in a lane that I'm not meant to run in? I'm not designed to run in it. Uh, one of the things heading up to Easter, and even this Lent season, we haven't talked specifically about Lent here in a while, but it, it is a beautiful season as we're going through passages like this to really reflect and where are we going after? Where, where, are we, where is sin making a mockery of us? Where, where do we make a mockery of God? And reflecting on that, uh, to use Hebrews 12.3 language, to consider that. So we would not grow faint-hearted. To have insight. But, but here's the thing. Uh, God doesn't just make a mockery of us in our sin. Jesus doesn't just do that. He deals with sin once and for all. So lastly, sin's mockery on the cross. Uh, Jesus is judged innocent here by Pilate, right? But becomes a long-awaited Passover sin who will take away the sins of the world. Uh, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Right? See here this idea. We will reign and we will choose someone here who's the epitome of it. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. This world. The glory of this world is our king. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Jesus didn't fight. Instead of fighting and demonstrating his power there, which he could have done, what he does is he demonstrates his power by making a mockery of sin. And specifically sin's assumption and Satan's assumption that it has the final word. Jesus, a few hours later, is going to go to the cross. And at the ninth hour, when he's on the cross, he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a lot of debate over this. Why does Jesus say this? Is Jesus actually going, oh my goodness, this was a really bad idea, right? Why have you forsaken me? What are you doing? I have no idea what you're doing. Actually, what's interesting, one thing that we, we usually miss is uh, the, the Psalms, were identified by their first line. If you wanted to read a psalm, the title of it would have essentially been its first line, verse 1. Uh, and what Jesus is doing here is he's calling to mind on the cross a psalm, a very specific psalm. First line, Psalm 22, it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is significant because it was one of the best-known psalms about how God's king would one day restore his people. It's one of the Psalms where it prophesies the coming king, the anointed of God, who would become accursed for his people, and they would reject him. It's a, it's a psalm that's filled with all the prophecies, the fact that they would, they would divide his clothes, that they would stand around and they would mock him, that not one bone of his would be broken. All those prophecies come from this psalm. And Jesus on the cross is saying, I am the kind of king you are waiting for, and how does the true king describe himself? goes on in verse 6 of Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. 
They make mouths at me and, and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver himself. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus says, I am the kind of king who became sin so I might mock. Be mocked when I take on your sin, but also so I might make a mockery of it. Listen to how the psalm ends. It goes through all the prophecies. If you read Psalm 22 and you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, it will stun you. Because, but it ends with this. The psalm ends with Jesus declaring on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go, Psalm 22, and you begin reading it, and you're going, my goodness, all the things that happened to Jesus are happening here. And you keep reading, and you get to the end what the psalmist declares. Through all of that, through God's king becoming a curse, taking on our curse, taking on the mockery, what happens? Says it ends this way, for kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who, who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What will they proclaim? That he has done it. As every gospel account says on the cross, he has done it or it is finished. What is finished? The mockery of sin. God makes an absolute mockery of sin. Sin claims to be something it isn't, that it could provide life, that it could satisfy and deliver on its promises. But Jesus, in becoming sin on the cross, gives us a clear picture of sin. He says it kills. In becoming sin on our behalf, mocked and killed, we see, what sin, we see sin as it really is. But Jesus also mocks sin by doing what it cannot. What sin makes us assume is impossible that we can find freedom from it and life beyond it. You and I were made for a crown. We were. But not the crown of thorns. A crown of thorns is necessary. But the crown that Jesus gives us is an imperishable one, Peter tells us. An imperishable crown which is not meant for us to mock God with, for eternity, but imperishable crown that Revelation tells us one day we will lay down at the feet of the true king, acknowledging his lordship, but also acknowledging why you made us with this glory. You and I were meant to be robed, but not in the tattered ambitions and fleeting things of this world, achievements and all those things, as good as they can be, we're not meant ultimately to find that robing, that clothing, that identity in those things, but in a righteousness that can never be stripped. The righteousness of the true eternal king. This passage is asking us during this time to consider where are we making a mockery of God and his claims to be God? And also to ask ourselves and reflect, where is sin making a mockery of my life? And then to consider how Jesus became mocked in our place so that we might be freed. And he says, come to me. Come to me. Don't find your 
glory and the pseudo-glories of this world, but find your glory, not in the, the fleeting crowns of this world, but find it ultimately in the crown that I place upon your head. Find it in my righteousness. Come to me, and I will give you a glory. I will give you an identity that's far beyond anything in this world could give you. See, don't settle for ruling over the, the dust, of getting the rule with creation and, and just kind of ruling in this way that is in the mockery of sin. But look to the one who entered the dust and was mocked in your place. Praise him for he has done it. He made a mockery of sin. And here's the thing. For just when Satan thought <laughs> that he had the Son of God, after gloating over him and dancing around him and mocking him and standing over him and shouting down at him and punching down on him. Just when he had him, the son of God in the tomb, mocking his claims to be God. Three days later, Jesus in that tomb will open his eyes and he'll turn to the proverbial camera and he'll smirk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, this clear and sobering picture in this passage of how we, we make a mockery of your claims to be God in our sin, in our rebellion. Lord, help us to see here that the end result of of our turning and smirking, of assuming that we know a better way. Lord, we all struggle with different aspects of your, your word, your law, your, your truth. Lord, help reveal to us where, where we're tempted to turn and smirk and to go our own way. Help us to see that at the end of the day, what we're doing is claiming that we, we have the right to be king over you. We know a better way. We have more wisdom than you. And Lord, reveal to us how that's making a mockery of our lives, how that's making a mockery of our relationships. And, and Lord, help us to see and not, not try to justify it. But Lord, to come to you. Lord, I, I ask that you would humble us. You would humble me. You would humble us in this room. And Lord, that we be humbled by seeing Jesus by seeing how you, you come and there's not this lashing out, but you, you take the lashes in our place and you call us to yourself. Lord, would you do that? Open our eyes, free our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.